Yep, it's me again, Jamie from GoToQ Remote Sensing, bringing you another installment of Actually, It's Phytoplankton, the podcast series about ocean ecology and NASA's PACE mission. I do hope you've been enjoying the series so far and learning lots of new things about the Earth's oceans. Head over to gotocurious.com and download the Episode 5 resource pack to follow along with the podcast. Guess who's back? Back again. Ivana's back. Tell a friend. Yeah, it's me, and I am here to save the world, and I don't sound half as creepy as you do. <laughs> I like that song. I'm really I know. No, that you <laughs> It's cool. I just, I just never heard it. I just never heard it. Maybe, maybe one of my favorite songs. Maybe the kids, maybe the kids know the song. I just don't. So, guys, something that Ivana and I have in common is that we're both mothers to little boys. And so, when I had my son, which was only last year, actually, I went on maternity leave for quite a while. And for a few months, I really didn't do much else other than feed the baby, change nappies, and try to sleep. But Ivana, your story is different, right? Yeah, I'm also mother of a six-year-old now. And uh, But when my son was born, pretty much he was three months old when I went on my first uh, field trip. So on a research cruise and stuff. And that was really hard. I have to say, I cannot lie. And it's not something that I recommend to somebody or anybody, but it's something that I've done. But that was not, um, in theory, his first research cruise. I went in two research cruises where I was pregnant. Uh, with Valis. So by the time he was one, he already been to Greenland and my belly, sailed to Bermuda, uh, went to Labrador Sea and yeah, sailed lots of places. So a little bit different. Yes. Yeah, that's incredible. Ben just went to school with me every day. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Lachlan used to do a lot of field work too um, earlier in his career. And he was very often away on research vessels cruising the Great Barrier Reef, but he doesn't do that so much anymore. So on the podcast today, we're talking to some very lucky adventurers who do what I would call Instagrammable science. So I'm wondering today, if PACE will be able to detect all the types of phytoplankton from space, why do you need a field team and why grow phytoplankton cultures in a lab? So yeah, um, so people that we're going to be talking today um, are part of our field work uh, dream team. They travel the globe on world-class research vessels and they collect the samples and do different types of measurements to support the work of satellite algorithms, so developing satellite algorithms, validating the satellite algorithms, like, you know, stuff that Lachlan does. Right. So welcome our guest today on our little science show, Ryan Vandermeulen and Amy Neely. Ahoy there. Hi. Hello, hello. So excited to be here. Also, Amy, I realize I haven't spoken to you since you were awarded your PhD. So congratulations, Dr. Neely. Thank you so much. I appreciate that uh, shout out. Um, I'm so happy and so relieved to have it done. But very sure you are. (laughs) Okay, so it's my turn to ask a question. And it's an easy one. What did each one of you want to be when you were 13 years old? Hmm. 13. Um, I can actually do better than that. This is a pretty easy question. I knew when I was in kindergarten, so it was at six years old, that I wanted to be a marine biologist. Um, Wow. (laughs) I went to a private school in a small town. And every now and then I see my kindergarten teacher because it is a small town. And she'll tell people how she remembers when I was in kindergarten, she taught my class that I said I wanted to be a marine biologist. So I take a lot of pride in that. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) 
Ryan, did you um, want it to be a marine biologist when you were six? Yeah, <laughs> well, I was a bit of a dark teenager, but I really wanted to be a coroner <laughs> at 13. So I know that job description seems fairly gruesome, but the whole science and investigation process and the manners of death was uh, quite fascinating to me. So I um, actually job shot a coroner years later in high school, and it was such a cool experience. And it really like solidified my ambition to you know, dye my hair black and pursue mortuary science as a career. But I ended up, you know, keeping my options open. And funny, it only took like one marine, uh, marine biology course in college with a really engaging professor to pretty much completely derail my life strategy. So yeah, I never looked back after that and decided to pursue the science of life instead of death. And here we are. Okay, so can I get you each to tell me a little bit about what your jobs are at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. So I am an oceanographer with the Ocean Ecology Group. Um, I'm also part of the field support group at NASA Goddard, which means I have the advantage of going out on ships and vessels of all types and travel around the ocean and make field measurements about such things such as uh, phytoplankton and other measurements including throwing instruments into the ocean to help us understand and interpret um, what the satellites are telling us. Um, I also have a lot of interest in phytoplankton ecology. I actually grow phytoplankton cultures in my lab um, so that we can look at different ecological properties. And then hopefully one day we can use that information to develop advanced mathematical equations that we can derive information about phytoplankton from the satellites. So I'm a biological oceanographer and my primary research interest is in examining the role that phytoplankton play in moving carbon through the ocean, which impacts everything from the climate, the food we get from our oceans and, and the oxygen that we breathe. But even though I study biology, I, I don't really uh, consider myself a biologist. I'm interested in remotely detecting phytoplankton. So on some days I'll work in the laboratory and, uh, and test the physics of how light gets bounced around and absorbed by phytoplankton so that we can use those same principles to help distinguish them from space. Other times I'll go to sea for weeks at a time and measure how phytoplankton change, you know, the chemistry of the water as they create carbon from sunlight. So in between those times, I'm behind a computer screen processing data and developing mathematical equations to, to help describe my findings. And also I want to mention I spend a decent amount of time finding ways to effectively communicate, you know, the scientific findings, which is an important but kind of often overlooked aspect of doing science. Um, so this, this means giving lectures at conferences, making presentations to share results with colleagues and the public, writing scientific papers, and even doing, you know, fun things like this podcast or, you know, even social media outreach. Yeah, the podcast is the funnest part of anyone's job. <laughs> Always. <laughs> okay, but Ryan, I'm going to bring you down back to the science and ask a science question. How do you make an algorithm? Okay, so an algorithm is using math to solve a problem. Sometimes it's really complicated, but sometimes something as simple as A plus B equals C can describe a fundamental process in the ocean. So I know that algorithm development may not really sound exciting on paper, but it is my my favorite part of the job. It's like working in a digital laboratory. First, all you need to do is start with a burning question that you want to know about how the world works. Second, you go out and collect the data that's relevant to help you answer that question, as we often do when we go to sea. But if you can't do that, you can scour the internet for free data that other people have collected all over the world, and it's been released to the public. So it's kind of cool. You can literally save the world from the comfort of your couch. So next, once you have a giant pile of data, it's your job to begin unscrambling it and finding patterns. To me, the 
process is kind of like trying to decipher a secret code. And that code is telling you something about how the earth works. And it's up to you to be creative in this process and look for patterns where no one else has before, you know, weave together different data sets, think outside of the box, you know, try different combinations, fail, reformulate your hypothesis and try again. And you really do have to pay attention to and learn from the failed experiments. It could be painfully frustrating at times, but with endurance and patience, there's a huge payoff when finally, you know, you discover a connection in your data that no one else has ever found before. Let's pretend for a moment that there is no such thing as a satellite. We go back in time in whatever your preferred pop culture vehicle is, be it DeLorean, police box, or hot tub. How would you traditionally measure phytoplankton with no satellite? Well, I wouldn't mind going back in a hot tub time machine. That would be Yay! that would be pretty <laughs> rad. <laughs> be a good way to go. So there are a few ways that um, we historically have measured phytoplankton in the ocean. Um, one way that you can measure phytoplankton is actually looking at how much phytoplankton are in the water, and we call this phytoplankton biomass. And this is done by collecting a water sample onto a white paper filter pad. And with this sample, we can actually take it and extract uh, a compound or pigment called chlorophyll. And this is the compound that land plants and phytoplankton use to harvest sunlight so that they can photosynthesize. So when we collect that sample and extract the chlorophyll and measure it, it can tell us how much of that phytoplankton is in the water. One thing we also like to do is we actually like to count phytoplankton as well. And this is a slightly, can be a slightly more tedious method, but counting can actually tell us the actual number of phytoplankton cells that are in your sample. Um, and the nice thing about the counting is that we can actually use a microscope to magnify the phytoplankton cells that are in the water sample and look at them and actually physically identify all the different types of species of phytoplankton that are in that water sample based on their physical characteristics. So not only are we counting, we can actually identify what's in that sample, which is actually just as important because not all phytoplankton are made equal. I like to make this analogy of, you know, spinach versus iceberg lettuce. You know, spinach we know is, is healthier, has more vitamins than iceberg lettuce. Phytoplankton, also some different types of phytoplankton are more nutritious to other organisms than other types of phytoplankton. So knowing the types of phytoplankton that are in the water are very important. Ryan, how do you make a connection between what pace we'll see from space and what is real in the ocean? I think both you and Amy kind of touched a bit about it. Sure. So pace is a highly sophisticated instrument, and it's looking at the entire surface. You know, we'll be looking at the entire surface of the ocean and giving us millions of unique optical fingerprints or distinct combinations of colors that are being reflected from the ocean's surface. So in order to make this information useful, we need to do two things. First, we need to verify that the color signature we see from space is the same thing we see on the ground. There's a thick atmosphere above our heads, and it absorbs and scatters light. So we have to subtract the signal off in order to see what's going on in the ocean. So we need to make sure first that we've properly corrected the satellite you know, to match what we see on the ground. Second, we have to decipher what specific components of the ocean water are causing the color to change. Now, it could be any combination of microscopic phytoplankton or sediment, dead cells, uh, floating seaweed, microplastics, dissolved runoff, oil slicks. All these things have their own unique optical fingerprint based on their not only their presence, but their size, their shape, 
their orientation, their abundance, and overall composition within the water. So if we can, from a ship, establish a clear relationship between the different components of the ocean and how they collectively influence the color of the water, then we can use the color information from PACE to globally map the microscopic components of the ocean. Now, this is really, really cool because it would take roughly 11 years for an average speed ship to measure what PACE can detect in under two minutes. Wow, so, that's yeah, amazing. Right? Uh-huh. So we need the field measurements to help us you know, connect what we see from satellites to what's really going on in the ocean. But think about this. On a boat, we're looking at nearly invisible biological you know, processes occurring under a microscope and detecting those very same processes from a satellite that's over 600 kilometers above our heads, blasting through space at you know 25,000 kilometers per hour. The fact that we're able to do this at all still totally blows my mind. What's, it's what makes me excited to come to work day after day. It's very futuristic. You can all come back into the future now in your hot tub. <laughs> Ivana has talked to me about phytoplankton rather a lot lately. You asked, um, I answered. <laughs> on the podcast and also off the podcast, we're talking about phytoplankton quite a bit. So she said, I should think about phytoplankton as being similar to flowers. Flowers are all flowers with some things in common but they all have different colors and shapes. Amy, can you explain to me the story of phytoplankton pigments and how those differences make them visible from space? You know, I have to say, I really like that analogy between phytoplankton and flowers. That's very nice, very pretty. Just like phytoplankton in the ocean, flowers have pigments that help us tell the difference between different types of flowers. You know, if you compare an orchid or a rose, an orchid looks purple and has a different shape and a rose is red and also has a different shape. So we can tell these two flowers apart based on their pigments. Um, And I know Ryan just told us a lot about color and the sunlight entering the atmosphere and hitting the ocean. And that sunlight has all the colors of the rainbow, right? When that sunlight touches something and we see color from a rose or an orchid, we see that red or blue. That is because all of the other colors are absorbed and that red color or that purple color is reflected back out into our eyes. So the same concept can be applied to phytoplankton, as phytoplankton also have these pigments that absorb and reflect light. And the satellite in space acts like our eyes, right? So it's looking down and it's seeing the light that's reflecting back out of the ocean. So it's seeing all the light that was not absorbed and those colors represent everything that was not absorbed and is reflected back out. And so if we can understand what colors of light are absorbed by certain types of phytoplankton and what are reflected back out, we can use that information from the satellite to tease apart different types of phytoplankton in the ocean, which is amazing and would give us so much information over the global ocean, considering what Ryan just said about how, you know, the satellite gives us so much coverage at a time versus a ship. To have that information on a global scale each day would be amazing. I got in this image of my head of the satellite, you know, in Lord of the Rings, but there's that eye of Sauron. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Hey, I have it. that image in my head of, of that eye. Like, <laughs> New pacemaster. Yeah. 
Scott yeah, for let's, sure. Let's yeah. think about a happy eye with Sauron, like you know, not, not a dark color. We just gotta paint a little eyebrow above it. That's all. Yeah, I just gotta put some like a unicorn, a unicorn horn or something. Just kind of make it a little bit fluffier. Well, I know really well that you guys have really, really, really adventurous jobs. And um, Jamie said that you do Instagramable science. And Gary Davis, and he's one of the engineers, and they're so jealous of us. Uh, on episode three, uh, said that you have the best jobs at, at the Pace Mission. Can you tell us a little bit about the places you traveled for work? I have traveled to some pretty spectacular locations around the world. Uh, my first ever research cruise was actually to the Arctic. And that's an interesting story because I it was on a uh, Canadian icebreaker, or sorry, a Canadian Coast Guard vessel. And it had a steward who cleaned your bathroom. And they had a dining hall that had cloth tablecloths and it had a hot tub. It actually did have a hot tub. Um, and unfortunately, that did that set a very high standard for any other ship that I was on. And I have to say my most favorite place that I've ever visited on my travels on various research cruises um, is probably Antarctica. And I've been there about three times. And it was there that I just fell in love with it the the glaciers the sea ice that pure blue color that you get from that pure water it's just absolutely stunning and I also fell in love with penguins I know that's not necessarily oceanography but I love penguins um and I actually have a tattoo of a couple of chin strap penguins on my arm because I'm sincerely obsessed with penguins and I have pictures of them in my house that I took domestically I've, I've been you know at least to, to you know, 20 plus cities across the the U.S. for work all the way from Hawaii several times to uh, the coast of Maine which, is, which has been fun but you know in, internationally I've uh, had the pleasure of washing down my brekkie with a long black in your lovely country of Australia and have nice. uh, also Healthy. been to <laughs> uh, South Korea three times and uh, Japan, China, Canada, Portugal, Croatia, uh, you know, lot, lots of cool places on, on land to, to go visit and, and you know, leave um, out of port at these places as well. Um, but beyond visiting other countries, what's kind of also really exciting is just being out, you know, thousands of kilometers away from any land at all on the high seas, seeing some of the most, you know, gorgeous sunsets and night skies uh, imaginable and serenading the sunset with my guitar. And we have a video of that. Yes. I have a video of that. You should no, that. have to share that with us. We'll no, put yeah. it on our website. Yeah, um, yeah, we were deploying. <laughs> I have a video of him with us deploying an instrument and he's singing to it. So that was oh, awesome. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely share that with us. I think our listeners would like to see that. Okay. So, um, Guys, I've never been on a cruise. I actually get disgusting seasickness. It's really terrible. So I stay away from boats as much as I can. Are research vessels like cruise boats that you would go on a holiday on? Is there like a chef? Amy said sometimes there's a hot tub. Is it like that or something different? I'll start with the food. So okay, <laughs> <laughs> food, it's very important. <laughs> the food is seriously legit. There is a chef on board. Some are better than others, but I've been on research vessels where the chef is like, you know, fishing while we're on station working and they'll serve, you know, fresh caught mahi for dinner, like a wonderful coconut sauce. It can be quite lovely. Uh, other times it's more cafeteria style, you know, but either way, after working like 12 plus hours in a hot cramp lab, everything tastes pretty amazing. So the most important thing is having an endless supply of coffee because the work is is really intense while you're on board. You know, it, it costs a lot of money to be out at sea and you want to get the most bang for your buck. So when you're out there, you're working hard and, you know, typically there are no real quiet moments on a boat. People often work in 
alternating shifts, working 24 hours around the clock. It's it's fast paced and very exciting, but you really have to be on the ball and know what your role is in order for things to move smoothly. Um, you know, especially because you might only have you know an eight by ten meter. Uh, maybe a little bigger laboratory area for a team of 15 scientists to be working in all at once. So when we arrive at a station, it's all systems go. It can it can be chaotic, but typically the chief scientist will make a detailed plan on, on how we sample beforehand. So, you know, the whole process ends up becoming sort of a, a well-choreographed uh, sampling dance, if you will. And then sometimes literal dancing breaks out too, especially after a few weeks at sea, we all start going a little crazy in a fun way. And we'll have like, you know, full-blown EDM dance parties in the lab. And Amy, what are your experiences on the research vessels? You know, I love going on uh, research cruises um, because you meet some of the nicest people um, because you all have to live in a very cramped space. You're next to lots of people all the time. You're bunking with two to three other people in the same tiny room. Everybody just has to be very considerate of each other and kind to each other. And I have my experience is everybody is usually fantastic with regards to say, let's say a regular sampling experience on a research cruise. Uh, usually what we do is we send down a, a rosette of bottles that can be triggered remotely from a computer on the ship. So we send it down the water column and we trigger those bottles to collect water at different points along the way. We can see a profile. There's usually a fluorometer that measures chlorophyll and oxygen and other things. So as we're putting down this big rosette of bottles down in the water column, we could see interesting features. And that's where we want to collect a water sample. So what happens is when we're ready to collect a water sample, these bottles have a top and bottom lid that when you trigger it, they close and they encase that water from down in the depths. It could be a thousand meters, it could be 500 meters, et cetera, at depth, bring it back to the surface. And then it sits down and everybody's ready. Everybody got their bottles. Everybody is ready to sample, but the key is there's an order to these things. So for instance, people that collect samples for oxygen, they usually go first and you do not want to cross people that have to collect oxygen first because they will come at you. They will be very upset <laughs> if you collect, if you jump in oh, ahead yeah. of line and collect your sample first. So usually the chief scientist will have an order of who goes in the order of operations, and you follow that order to the T so that, number one, everybody gets their sample, everybody gets a, an accurate sample, and number three is that everybody gets the amount of water they need. Um, so, again, back to that consideration of everybody needs to be considerate, not only of life on the ship, but also everybody's trying to do science and do the best science, and you have to just be kind to every, each other and, and take everyone into consideration. As someone who's collected uh, oxygen on a boat with you, Amy, I'm really sorry if I was ever cross with you. <laughs> no, I don't think you were, but no, I, no, I, I, know, I know my place, so I've never crossed that line, I've been, but I've seen other people do it. Well, I mean, I've been... I think all through that, Ryan's going, oh, geez. No, 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 but this is the thing. I've been, I've been through scientists many times. What I do first, I just give them their own bottle. Mm -hmm. It just like yeah. then did it because if not, yeah. everybody just sitting and waiting for them and they rinse and they rinse mm -hmm. and they rinse and they rinse. And no, this one is not good. I still oh, feel like you're talking about me. No, 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 this is not to you. <laughs> I mean, this is, but this is generally gases, always gases. Mm -hmm. And then, the, then yep. the nutrients, like we optics and biology usually goes last. 
So it sounds like fun and a lot of hard work too. So thanks for tackling all of our science questions, you guys. But now it's time for some fun. And I'm not saying that you weren't fun. You were fun. But this is more fun. So each episode we have an at-home activity to share with our audience. And today we want you to try playing the Carbon Cycle Shoots and Ladders game. So fun fact, in Australia we call this game Snakes and Ladders. You didn't call it Wombats and Ladders? <laughs> wombats and cute and poop? Snakes. It's, it's important <laughs> that the board game can kill you too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, absolutely. It's part of our culture. So on our, on our game you slide down the snakes, and I really don't know why you have to slide down a snake, but I was talking to Lockie about it because uh, we never really thought about it. And he thought that it's because you get eaten by the snake and then pooped out. <laughs> I didn't think you get it officially puked out because you enter through the mouth and you kind of end up on the end of the snakes. It's not literally puked yeah. out. I think it's no, pooped, not out. pooped out. Pooped out. Yeah. Oh, I heard puked out. Sorry. I oh, just want to, I mean, like, I'm a carbon cycle person. Like, you know, poops, entry of the carbon and exit of carbon are really important for me. So. <laughs> No, pooped out for sure. <laughs> in the in the mouth, out the other end. <laughs> um, but that's how he thought that the game worked when he was a kid. And I just can't say that that ever ended up into my mind. I just thought it was a slippery snake, and you just go like wee <laughs> down the snake. Yeah, I so think I don't know. To agree with you, because science is definitely on your side. There's there's no chewing when a snake eats eats you. You know, it just like devours your body whole. So. You'd have to spend a lot of time in the yeah. snake to get to your next yeah, destination. It takes, it takes like three to seven days for a, a snake to, to poop after it is. It is so, <laughs> and that now is we're going back to morbid part of his stuff. There is so much of a poop theme. <laughs> all, my, all, my own, all my conversations end up with poop. I don't know. I have lots of conversations about it. Somehow. Everybody does it. Everybody and does then we it. should all just be open with <laughs> And and, that, and 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 really, if you play the carbon cycle game, you're going to see that there's lots of poop mentioned in there. Love it. And you know, all the questions about about NASA missions is how do you how do you poop in space? And for you guys, it's going to be what what happens with the toilets on the boat? Like, do you have to dock? To, actually, we should ask that. What no. what happens with the toilet? Well, you go far away from where you're going to sample. Usually when you're underway between stations or something like that, and they eject it into the ocean, it becomes part of the ocean carbon cycle. <laughs> so we add to it, but away carbon from where we're sampling. <laughs> but you want to do it away from when you're sampling because number one, that's gross. And number two, it's obviously contaminated at that point. So. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, regardless if you're doing like sediment traps or like we can measure the color of the ocean and just imagine if, some portion of that colored material enters in our instruments. First, it could be disgusting to clean them, but we would <laughs> yeah. actually see that. You can you can use the color of the ocean to trace um, outfalls of the of the sewages and things like that. So we'd be able actually mm -hmm. to see the poop. What's the color spectrum of poop? It's sedum. <laughs> it's like I, 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 could, I could actually I could actually draw it for you. I could draw awesome. it for you. <laughs> In our first episode, we talk about whale. Is it whale poop? Is it an oil slick? Actually, it's phytoplankton, and that's um, what we sometimes hear people asking at our local beaches uh, if there's a trichodesmium bloom because it's brown and like a big, gross slick. <laughs> Anywho, carbon cycle game, listeners. Please find your way to go to curious.com where you can access the episode five resource pack and locate the carbon cycle game. I have to say, for me as a teacher, this is such a great resource to use in your classrooms. 
Yeah, and there's also a video of me explaining how to play the game with the creator of the game, James Fox from Oregon State University. Right. Is James Australian or is he British? Because I watched the video and I was like, he sounds like me, sort of. But well, no. he came from there, from UK, and so I'm going to say he's Welsh and he's going to probably kill oh. me. Probably he's just British. Welsh. And you know what? I will check on that one and you're going to put disclaimer on this stuff because I, I thought I'm going to check and I forgot. Let's call him Welsh. Welsh counts as British. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he is British, but I mean, he's from that isle. He didn't came from Irish Isle. He is from that, you know, isle, but which part of the isle? He's definitely not Scottish. We can cross that one over. So it's either English or Welsh. And somehow I want him to be Welsh. So let's call him Welsh. I thought I got excited because I thought he's Australian. And then I'm like, wait, no, he, no, he sounds much nah, more refined sorry. than I do. Mm. <laughs> sorry. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amy and Ryan. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Yes. Thanks for having us. So next episode, it's our last one. Ivana, Lachlan and I get back together for one last hurrah to talk applications. That is, what real world value does PACE have? How will it help people and industries in the short term? We'll speak to some lovely folks from the PACE applications and early adopters team, Erin Urquhart and Joel Scott. Once again, there are two prize packs to win. They're amazing. There's so much stuff in them. Mm -hmm. Details are on our Facebook. See you next time, Phyto nerds. <laughs> oh, no. I forgot to ask Amy and Ryan the Star Wars or Star Trek question. Oh, no. Oh, hi, Lachlan. <laughs> How are you doing? Good. Did you like my Wookiee? I loved it. Okay. Um, so we did email them and find out, and we kind of started a little bit of a war amongst Amy and Ryan. So I'm just going to give you the very brief version. So Amy says, definitely Star Wars, the original trilogy, four, five, and six from the 70s and 80s, not the newer episodes. Ooh. She's very specific about that. In fact, I sought out and purchased the DVDs of the original trilogy, not the edited versions released in the 90s. Hashtag Han shot first, and some folks loved them, others hated them. But I loved the Ewoks. Was there a change? Did they make Han not shoot first or something? Oh, yes. There's some editing in the bar scene, I think. <sighs> also, uh, the CGI. Oh, I love, I like I feel the... like we might get a lot of social media might get heat <laughs> attention for, this. for these opinions. Okay. And what does Ryan say, Jamie? Ryan says, I do love both, but I'm wholly devoted to Star Trek. It focuses more on aspects of humanity and relevant social issues, and it makes me feel like a boss when I drink Earl Grey tea. I have no idea what that reference is, I'm sorry, but I'm sure you Star Trek fans do. He says, I'm not trying to throw shade on the Lucas universe, but I'd take Spaceballs over Star Wars. Ooh. Burn. Big burn. <laughs> well, I will say that there are about five more emails uh, that I got in the middle of the night Whoa. from them having a bit of a a bit of a war about Star Wars versus Star Trek, so I definitely started something. <laughs> Again, I think we've discovered a an additional podcast. For <laughs> <laughs> Actually, It's Phytoplankton is a Go to Curious production proudly supported by an advanced Queensland Engaging Science grant provided by the Queensland Government. Thank you to NASA Goddard Space Flight Centre Ocean Ecology Laboratory for collaborating with us, providing in-kind support and credited use of education and outreach resources. Special thanks to Ivana Sertinich and Lachlan McKinna, who work with me behind the scenes in the writing and preparation of the series. Our theme song and all podcast music is composed by me, Jamie Cool. I also edit the series and create the supporting materials on our website, gotocurious.com, in collaboration with Ivana and Lachlan. Logos, website and social banners designed by Boone Creative. 
Our custom podcast t-shirts and totes are made especially for kids by Zay and B Designs.